Friday and Saturday was the the disco. You know, the disco. Uh, uh, you know, the strength of the disco uh, uh, music. So um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I realized that um, as I was getting records from the record pool, Eddie Rivera at IDRC. You know, I, I first started with David Mancuso at his pool. Um, that was the first record pool. And uh, I was very grateful to be part of that scenario. I remember seeing Donna Summer perform for the very first time at the record pool um, on a Wednesday afternoon. And uh, she performed Love to Love You Baby. Uh, and we didn't know who she was. The Casablanca Records was there and they were debuting her and she comes out on stage, little five foot four cute girl and she starts singing Love to Love You Baby and let me tell you, the crowd, you know, the crowd went nuts with that record. And I just feel that. Now, paint the picture who's around you at this 99 Prince Street record pool party. Because this is what people need to understand. Because I, I know the pictures, I know the people, but tell us who was around you at that time. Well, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of key jocks there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of uh, jocks that represented the gay clubs uh, all over the city. And keep in mind, you know, the gay movement, the gay movement was a huge movement in the in the music business. I mean, think about it. Brazilian Brazilian people are very festive. Gay people are very festive. You know that environment. You know uh, when you think of gay clubs. Uh, you know what, what was going on in Fire Island. You know uh, on the West Coast. I mean, this was the pulse of party, and the David Mancuso's pool had a lot of the big name DJs there, uh, you know, that was starting out. I can't remember a lot of them uh, at this point, um, but, you know, a lot of the names were there. And um, so it was exciting to be part of the pool, getting to meet and mingle with these DJs and learning a little bit about their mindset on what they did, you know, the kind of music they were playing. You know, most of the gay clubs were playing a lot of high energy. I remember Jim Burgess playing a lot of high energy at 12 West, you know, and, you know, Jim Burgess was a very talented um, uh, DJ. Outside of being a DJ, he was, you know, he was was very musically inclined. He knew a lot about uh, classical music. He, brought, he was brought up in that environment in his home. So he was very well um, uh, uh, educated in music itself. And all of these things, when you go into, rec- into a recording studio, they, they have some value because when you're putting together records, when you're mixing records in the studio, you're just not thinking strictly about the dance floor you're thinking a little bit more about who else is going to buy this record. Who else is going to listen to this record? What can we do to this record to make it a little bit more 
have it uh, give it a little bit more broad appeal, you know, with instruments, whether it's violins or piano, you know. So that was Jim Burgess, you know, very, very astute, you know. And you had Bobby DJ, too, very, very talented um, DJ in his own right. Uh, Bobby DJ and Tom Savarese were managed by uh, Marilyn Green Fisher. That was their manager. And I met Marilyn. As a matter of fact, I had Bobby DJ perform at the Ipanema. We started having guest nights on Tuesday nights at the Ipanema. We had Bobby DJ perform, David Todd perform. You know, I mean, it was great to have these, you know, maestros perform at the Ipanema too. So uh, the Ipanema became a very popular place, you know, not to mention that it was a, it was Latin based, but we had a lot of, you know, and where the Ipanema was located, 240 West 42nd Street, uh, 50, um, 52nd Street, the theater district, you know. So people came out of their Broadway shows watching Annie or whatever other shows that were going on, and they came right into the Ipanema and became part of the mixture. A very exciting, very exciting place. You know, and keep in mind, the Ipanema was uh, two blocks away from Studio 54. Was was Ipanema installation uh, Rosner or Richard Long? Uh, I believe it was a Richard Long system. Um, and... Uh, Try to remember the amplifiers that we had. We had a bunch. We had about ten amplifiers. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the the amplifiers, but we had a. It was a Richard Long system, I believe, and um, you know Richard put together some some great systems, and so did Alex Rosner. Some great sound systems. You know, I mean, to me, they were the epitome of sound systems. You know, you think of the Paradise Garage and that system i mean there's never been there's never been anything like the garage system an incredible an incredible sound system i mean you know talk about power and tweeters and uh you know having a dj look like a god because of the power and, and uh, of the system well that was the garage you know that was larry levan and the garage and in many ways david mancuso too at the loft Absolutely. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Nobody had that thrust like Larry Levan had. Nobody could <laughs> turn on that thrust. That was just like man oh my God, that thrust. Walking up those those you know that garage uh, uh, driveway uh, and 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 trying to get into the garage and there was a, there would be huge lines and you're waiting and all you hear is the pounding of that bass as you're online and and it felt like. You know, it felt like something was coming at, like an earthquake was coming at you. <laughs> incredible, incredible sound, incredible memories. And that's what made, you know, a lot of the garage was just a sound system. It was bigger than life. And, uh, you know, today you don't have that. You don't have, uh, you know, 
the quality. You know, you one thing. Even, wait, wait, wait. You don't even have the music, no less the quality. The music's <laughs> so different. So yeah. you can't really compare it. It's it's just, I tell people that you just, there's no comparison. But let's stay back in that time because we need to hear more. We're extracting, we're being educated through your eyes. We don't want you to come to now yet. We'll leave that for later. <laughs> but, but, Back in the Ipanema era, like you said, you were bringing in DJs on Tuesday nights. So was there other clubs doing the same or you were the first to do that in the well, city? You know, I mean, the whole idea of a guest spot, a guest spot. And, you know, I mean, um, you know, a lot of the gay, play, uh, gay clubs were doing tea dances on Sundays, which is, you know, it's an afternoon party and it's a festive party. And and guest DJs were performing at these tea dances on Sunday nights in various gay clubs all over the all over the country and here in the city uh, in Fire Island. So the whole idea of a guest spot was already there. I kind of took that and said, you know, why why can't we bring in some of these well-known DJs and create some extra excitement? on a Tuesday night, you know, and uh, and connect with the DJs that are performing as guests all over the place, you know, kind of bring that environment to the Ipanema, which I thought was pretty exciting. So, um, you know, so uh, one thing led to another. Um, as a member, I left, uh, I left um, David Mancuso, and his record pool. And keep in mind, I love David Mancuso. I always, you know, to this to this day, David Mancuso holds a very special place in my heart um, for everything I learned while being at the record pool, the way he conducted the record pool business uh, with the applications and the, you know, the requirements to become a member of the record pool you had to be performing at a club you had to verify that you were performing at a club with a letterhead from the club just to be considered to come in and be part of the pool um well you know david david went through a lot you know uh getting the loft to run uh and getting the pool to become the the number one pool in the country it was the only pool that started and it became the number one pool in the uh, in the country uh david was behind all of that and the fact that uh, while being at the record pool you had to provide feedback on all of these records you know just because you're now part of the record pool that doesn't mean that you're going to collect these records and brag about all these new records that you have there was work to be done you know, you have to give feedback. You have to test these records. Come back and provide feedback for each record. Do you like the record? Do you don't like the record? Why? What's wrong with the record? You have to provide this feedback and sign each feedback sheet for each record that you got from the pool. If one feedback sheet was not completed, your subscription for these new records will be terminated or stopped because David was pretty adamant about making sure that the record companies got their feedback on, on these records, because that was the lifeblood of the pool. 
Feedback, more records. No feedback. Why are these records? Why are these records coming down to the pool? You know, there's money involved. It's a business. You have to understand. You have to conduct yourself as a professional while you were a member of David Mancuso's pool. But let me share everybody the infinema thing is, you know, you, you want a hot spinner in New York and one of the hot spots to be part of that record pool because that was power for the pool to pull the best records. So by him showing that he was the the man behind Infinima, a one of the DJs at the time, and he got him his place in history at 99 Prince Street Record Pool. That's correct. That's correct, Lenny. And uh, you know, you know, and and I I, I look at my tenure at uh, 99 Prince Street, and to me, it it kind of sets a tone with everything I do in life, the discipline. You know, you know, you learn how to become a little a professional uh, DJ. You walk around uh, knowing that there's a, there's an order to what you do, and I, I thank Mancuso for that. Anyway, at some point, more pools started branching out. Hey, this record pool at 99 Prince Street is doing well. They're getting a lot of records. So the, the idea of other record pools, you know, when you think of Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola, you know, if you have Coca-Cola, you have Pepsi coming in because um, why not, you know, copy it. So, um, so that's what happened uh, with a lot of more record pools coming in. Eddie Rivera was part of David Mancuso's pool before he started his own record pool. And he learned a lot from David and how he watched and how he ran his pool. Um, I believe Eddie saw an avenue that said, well, there's a lot of Latino DJs formulating, working at clubs, and maybe I can, maybe I can take this concept and run with it with a new pool. So at some point, the International Disco Record Center, IDRC, formulated. Eddie Rivera was the president and he had his brothers, Jamie, uh, Dennis, and the rest, uh, some of the other Riveras, the Rivera family run the pool. Um, and at some point I left David to join Eddie because not to, not, not because I didn't have anything against David, but because of the fact that Eddie, Eddie and I had a lot of communication and Eddie always communicated and talked to me like a brother. He always he wanted to help my career. He wanted to be there for me as a guiding light with things. Um, he spoke to me with, uh, with care, with, uh, with an, 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 an intent to want to enhance my career. So I saw that Eddie was beginning to get a lot of the records that David was getting, 
He had the same connection to a lot of these record companies, Polydor, Casablanca Records, TK, which was a huge force with Ray Caviano and uh, and, uh, and uh, Mr. Stone that owned the company. Well, I made that shift because I didn't think I was going to lose too much too much music by going to Eddie. And Eddie kind of, quote unquote, had my back with support. So I joined IDRC. And after time with Eddie, um, you know, and I had DJed a few parties for IDRC, the Beverly Johnson party back in 81 at the record pool. Keep in, keep in mind that a lot of these record pools, you know, for those that are out there that don't understand a little bit more about how these pools work, they were just not a location to pick up records and provide feedback. There were parties that uh, that uh, existed at a lot of these record pools. <clears throat> record companies would have events at these record pools and um, and parties, and uh, there will be music, there will be artists, there will be the industry at these parties circulating. A great place to get to to mingle and uh, get to know people at these parties. A lot of excitement. So. Um, uh, what happened was uh, Eddie, <clears throat> at some point, got a call from Vanguard Records at his pool. And Vanguard, you know, Vanguard Records was, the history of Vanguard Records was not dance music, wasn't disco. You know, when you think of Vanguard Records, when you think of the real label, classical, jazz, country, Joan Baez was the artist that built that label. This has nothing to do with disco. Maynard Solomon, Seymour Solomon are the two people that started Vanguard Records with $10,000 and built that label. And, you know, when disco came into the arena in the 70s, there was so much excitement. So much, quote-unquote, money to be made if you knew what you were doing in the business that the Solomons, and keep in mind, they were older people already. Uh, they were in their 70s when disco came into the picture. So you imagine you're, you're running a label, classical, jazz, and disco comes in. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the madness? So you're telling me they actually were there when Thomas Edison created the <laughs> gramophone. Think about it, because it would have been 1976, 77. They were there in the beginning of the of the 20th century, right there with the, <laughs> you know, think about it. In Columbia with those acetate, you know, those, those <laughs> Yeah, so you're right. dealing with that. Yeah. You're dealing with dinosaurs, right? I mean, dinosaurs. Well, yeah. I mean, let me tell you something. Maynard, Maynard Solomon, the president of, Set, of Vanguard Records, you know, he worked, when he came to work at Vanguard, he came in, he came in and would walk in don't wouldn't say hello to anybody. Maybe maybe his, his own personal secretary. Good morning, and walk into his office, 
close the door, and you wouldn't see him all day. This was him every day. And what he was doing, he was writing a book on the life of Beethoven behind closed doors. This was Maynard Solomon. So disco was kind of, there was money to be made, but he kind of didn't want to deal with it. It wasn't his cup of tea, okay? So now, Eddie Rivera at IDRC gets a call from Vanguard Records, not from Maynard Solomon, from one of the uh, one of the other staff members. <clears throat> it could have been uh, one of the guys that did promotion on some of their music. Anyway, I think it was Jeff Zarea. Jeff Zarea was an engineer at Vanguard Records, and he engineered a lot of this classical stuff. Uh, and it was kind of Maynard Solomon's um, right hand man in trying to bridge into some of this modern music. Okay, so Eddie gets a call from Vanguard and and he relates that call to me and he says, Pinky, Vanguard is looking for someone to help them with this disco music, this dance stuff. And I referred your name to Vanguard as someone that's in the pool that knows a lot about this music and could possibly help them. Okay, so I get a call from Vanguard based on that recommendation. And uh, I got the call from, what's his name? Uh, Danny Weiss, who was a producer, did a lot of the jazz recordings and was kind of handling some of the disco stuff, but he wasn't too sure about this disco stuff, what was hot, you know. All right, so I walk in there and I meet with Danny and I give him my points of views that, you know, um, there's different types of dance music, you know, where, you know, there's high energy disco, there's, you know, the, there's different clubs that cater to different types of uh, disco, disco itself, you know, not every DJ is going to play every disco record. You know, there's, there's, there's a breakdown within disco of what DJs like. So I explained a lot of this to Danny, you know, the difference between the gay clubs, the white clubs, the black clubs, and what type of quote-unquote disco was going to hit these audiences. And more importantly, how a record company has to understand this because now a record company just doesn't want to please the DJs for all of these different types of clubs. We're talking about getting stuff on the radio, you know, and selling records that way. You know, there's a big, there's a big misconception, Lenny, about in this business that if you have a hot club record, that the record is on its way and it's going to make it and it's going to be a big hit. Let me tell you. You could have a record be number one on a dance chart and still not get radio play and enough sales to substantiate that release. Why? Well, think about it. Clubs, people dance. Radio, people listen. Getting back to my old formula, I listened to a lot of stuff in the 60s. 
that influenced my career based on hearing a melody and a song. People on radio want to hear a melody and a song. And the, the true marriage of making a record work is having a record that's good to dance to and at the same time, good to listen to. If you're not a dancer, if you're listening on the radio, something that has a little bit of a song. When you have both of those things working, now you got now you have a potential of breaking something big. But I want to ask this as well right now, because it's on my mind. Bangor calls Eddie. Is this after Sinai fever or pre-Sinai fever? You know why I'm asking, right? Because the excitement of disco ignited right after the movie happened. That's what I'm wondering. You know, this could have been around that time. It could have, I, it may have been a little bit before. A little bit before. What year was that? Do you remember what year Saturday Night Fever was? December, you know? December of 77. The movie. 77. Okay. Well, um, I was at Ipanema. I remember I did one of my big records um, uh, called Childhood Forever by Recreation Harmony on the Dynamo label. I picked up that record. Let me give you some insight. I picked up that record. I was playing that record as a 45 import from Canada. I forget the name of the label, but I remember the colors of the label, olive, round red circles, uh, uh, French label. I, was, I had two copies of this record and I'm playing it back to back in the middle of the night at the Ipanema, creating a frenzy with this instrumental record. And I took it to Dynamo Records, 70, 77, 78. And I spoke to the president of Dynamo Records. He himself, he had no idea of, of what was hot uh, disco-wise. He's probably about 80 years old. And he put out a record not too long ago called Disco, disco Dracula. Which was which was which, which was like, like listening to Disco Duck. The freaking worst piece of crap you ever want to hear in your life. <laughs> you live about you Disco. You see, you say Disco Dracula. I went, no, no. Hey, but you know something. These Wait a minute, Pinky. <laughs> you're so philosophical. They put you with all these wonderful young men, seventy. 80 years old, already been through 60 years of the business. And I'm going, you can hear about 20 years. I'm presenting a heart attack to these people. You're saying it's so wonderfully relaxed and eloquently. They must be saying, get this effing kid out of here. Get him out of here with this crap, right? And I'm just waiting for that to come. Bad. You know, it's funny. You know, so, you know, not to to condition uh, the president of Dynamo Records, <clears throat> I had to take him to the garage to show him. And let me talk oh, to you. Okay, he said, his words to me were uh, regarding visiting the garage was, you know, that's a sick scene down at the garage. <laughs> But I had to educate him and, and, and give him 
something to bite on so that he understood my communication with him about taking this record, doing a longer version for the clubs, which he didn't understand. Why do you want to do a long version? Why do you want to do six minutes of a record for? I mean, isn't three minutes enough? Isn't four minutes enough? Why, you know, I had to explain, I had to show him the extension of these records being played in the garage. So he had a feel that the monotony made sense on vinyl for them. So wait, let's let's paint the picture. Pink brings this older gentleman to Sodom and Gomorrah with fire burning. Throws him in there and says, just trust me. We're going to show you what I mean momentarily. They go up they see Noel, they go through the door and they walk into the gigantic dance floor and the place is on fire. And he was, you know, I mean, he was very intimidated just walking in, looking at the crowd on the outside, hanging out, walking up that that ramp with the bass pounding. I mean, he didn't, he never thought that disco was this, you know, this setting. Anyway, long story short, <clears throat> um, he we picked up the record from Canada. I did an edit, and we released the song on Dynamo Records. <clears throat> and you know the original the original title from Canada was in French. Was in French. Uh, a Chacon song un français by recreation uh, by uh, recre um, recreation harmony <clears throat> we released a song and translated it to english which translates to childhood forever and released the song the song went top tw uh, top 15 billboard dance charts i got nominated for disco mix of the year for that record I didn't win the nomination 1978 uh, at the Billboard convention um, at the Hilton Hotel uh, that year, but um, I was nominated and, you know, I lost the nomination. You know, the nominees for Disco Mix of the Year in 1978, there was Walter Gibbons with, uh, I think, Block Party. There was Tom Savarese with Dance, Dan uh, Dance, 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 Chic. You know, there was a, you know, a formidable bunch of uh, Manny Slally uh, did uh, another record. You know, there was a bunch of nominees. I didn't win, but I was nominated, and I was uh, very elated about the release of that record. We sold tons of records and definitely changed uh, the mindset of the label, Dynamo Records, with uh, what they were doing at that time. Anyway, going back to Vanguard, <clears throat> uh, I got the job at Vanguard uh, based on the interview with Danny Weiss. I still collaborated when I did mixes uh, early with Vanguard as a consultant. And Danny Weiss would be there just kind of watching to make sure that, you know, what I was doing made sense musically. You know, in other words, are the vocals too high? Are the, the piano too low? You know, it, does this sound like a song or... Or, the, or, or is Ray going to, you know, kind of distort the song? And, you know, I learned one thing at Vanguard. <clears throat> um, communication with the artists 
getting to know the artists, getting to get a feel of what what they wanted out of their careers, getting to understand them as people helped me when I went into the recording studio and did mixes because I thought about those elements. You know, I want to make sure that when I did a mix on the record, the vocals shine on the record. You know, the, the vocal qualities were there. You know, you hear a lot of records, especially today, you hear a lot of these house records. You can't hear the vocalists sometimes. It's so so low on, you know, on the mix that, you know, you're hearing more of the bass and drums, but not enough vocals, not enough music. It's not up enough, you know, all, you know, all geared to the dance floor. Anyway, so, you know, we had Carol Williams. We had Fonda. Let me give let me tell you a story about Carol Williams, you know, <clears throat> at Vanguard. Um, we released, you know, Daryl Payne was the producer on Carol on Can't Get Away. I did the mix on the record. Um, and we released a song. The song started getting play on WBLS in the city, RK, uh, WRK Kiss FM um, in the city. Frankie Crocker was playing it on BLS, Barry, Ma Barry Mayo on, on Kiss, Paco. Navarro eventually and uh, KTU started playing it. You know, KTU is more of a, a freestyle, you know, uh, Euro disco station. The other two stations were getting, were playing more of the R&B dance stuff. You know, so Carol Williams and Can't Get Away fit more of the R&B formula. You know, eventually because of the sales, um, KTU would be playing it to respect the fact that, you know, it's selling, let's play it. You know, that kind of a picture. Anyway, so over time, we're getting Can't Get Away on the dance charts, on the R&B charts, sales. We had some sales on the record. At some point, like any record, doesn't matter how hot it is, you know, whether it's Michael Jackson or, you know, or whoever, Stevie Wonder, Sales will start coming down on a record. Doesn't stay selling forever. Doesn't start, you know, it doesn't stay on the radio waves forever. So when the record started dying out, <clears throat> sales-wise, we had a little bit of a powwow at Vanguard Records. What's that? We all got together, the promotional staff, the radio staff, and we discussed the sales of the record and we discuss whether or not there's anything that could be done to get more sales. That was kind of a situation with every record. We always got together every week to go over sales, radio play, which stations are playing it, why aren't certain R&B stations playing this record. You know, keep in mind, a, a group like the Gap Band, very big R&B group, big in the South. A lot of their initial releases, you couldn't get you couldn't get R&B radio in the Northeast or in the urban cities to play some of this stuff. It wasn't the urban sound. So, but if you got a lot of sales from the Gap Band in the South, eventually a station like BLS in New York or, or Kiss, even though it wasn't the sound of the station because it was to not urban enough, would play the Gap Band out of respect, out of the sales. So you had all these different things going on 
you know, on how a record gets played. And when you're working, working it with a record company, you have to understand all of this. You know, that's your job to understand the different avenues that are out there on a record, you know. So, um, and you bring that knowledge and try to make it work with what you're doing. So, getting back to Can't Get Away, Carol Williams, the record started dying out. There's my girl. Yes. <laughs> and what happened was we discussed what we could do to get more sales out of the record. And everyone's coming up with ideas. Ray Smith, who was head of radio promotions, um, uh, uh, he's deceased now. Rest in peace, Ray. Uh, good man. Um, well, we decided to go back into the studio and do a new version of Can't Get Away. We would have Carol come in and thank the New York City DJs for playing Can't Get Away. So we wrote up a script. As a matter of fact, Carol may have written the, the script and she talked it as the intro of the record. We edited that and then started the 10-inch de- uh, uh, dub mix that I mixed in the studio at Vanguard Studios. <clears throat> you know, Vanguard Studios was one block away from Vanguard Records on the same West 23rd Street in Manhattan. So I go into the studio with Mark Berry and we do a dub version. <clears throat> now, we're not expecting any radio play from a dub version because dub versions are, you know, you know, the whole, the whole concept of dub comes from a lot of these reggae records where they, you know, there's the, the, the term dub is a big part of the reggae uh, movement for music. Well, um, we do a dub version of the record and we, we decide to put it on a 10 inch record. Why 10-inch? Well, I knew, thank God, that I was part of the rock pool. Uh, Jellybean and I were both part of rock pool in the city when they opened up this uh, <clears throat> pool for rock DJs. Playing was, that to, was that to John Luongo? No, no. John Luongo had another pool. Rock pool was started by Danny Heaps, who later became the a r director at Geffen Records uh, and signed Susie and the Banshees uh, to the label. But basically, um, and Mark Fodiatis, who was part of the rock pool, these are guys that, are, that know the underground rock scene here in the States, in Germany, in the UK, uh, Scotland, you know, they understand the pulse of dance rock music, the underground stuff, you know, and I respect that. That's another angle of music that got very little commercial, I mean, radio play, a lot of college radio was associated with that movement. But I wanted to get some of these records. I like, I grew up on rock and roll. I wanted to have a library of rock, dance rock records, you know, uh, New Order and Blue Monday was one of those records that came from that environment and became part of the disco scene, but it was basically a rock 
band, you know. <clears throat> um, so getting back, the rock movement had a lot of 10-inch records, okay? There was a lot of, you know, when you look at, when you go and look at dance rock stuff or even rock and roll stuff, you see a lot of 10-inch records. So I said, let's put this new version <clears throat> of Carol Williams, Can't Get Away, let's put it on a 10-inch. Why? One, the novelty of the size of the record would be something that these DJs all over the country would cherish and show off in the booth. They have a 10-inch record. Everybody's got 12-inch records. Where are you getting these 10-inch records from? <clears throat> and, and even though the issue of quality, audio quality <clears throat> on a 10-inch, 12-inch is a little bit better quality than 10-inch. It's not much, but I thought that the novelty of the 10-inch would create an impact, an immediate impact if the record was good to these DJs across the country. So we released it on 10-inch. We didn't make it commercially available, not available in the stores, only for the DJs, further enhancing their connection to, to treat this record like a piece of gold. It was unique, not available in the stores. And pressed about 4,000 of them, send them out to the pools all over the country. And what happened was, while Carol Williams and Can't Get Away was dying out, sales-wise, radio-wise, chart-wise, beginning to go down on the dance charts a little bit, the record started getting played in the clubs. What happened was the DJs were playing the original 12-inch version and mixing it with the new 10-inch version, back and forth creating their own new version in the clubs, enhancing the play of the clubs, bringing it back up on the charts a little bit, creating some more sales, keeping the radio element there on the original three-minute version of the vocal uh, version. And sales picked up, and we revived the song that way. That was my idea. and. Um, it kind of revived the song for a while. Did Carlos, was Carlos de Jesus at that time the program director at KTU? Yes. yes. Did you go to him with the record? And uh, do you remember bringing Carlos, it to him? You know, Carlos de Jesus, keep in mind, um, um, Lenny, that we had promotion people uh, working. We had Heidi Spiegel working with us. Uh, she was very connected with the radio people. Um, um, and you know, her boyfriend, I believe her boy, boyfriend or her husband, uh, Heidi, please forgive me, uh, was working at BLS at the time. And, um, you know, she had an in with uh, some of the people, especially with Carlos at, uh, uh, at KTU. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that Carlos got the record pretty quickly as soon as we got it. But again, <clears throat> uh, the 10-inch was not something that was played on the radio, only in the clubs, because it was a dub version. You know, you couldn't play a 
the dub on the radio. Not not on mainstream radio. Maybe on private shows. Yeah. Let me ask you this other part. In nineteen, we're talking about nineteen eighty eighty one. The dub thing was something so fresh. There was hardly nothing like that before. I mean, maybe you had Time Warp by Eddie Grant, the instrumental that. I think that was being rocked. And there was a, maybe one or two other things, but there was not a lot of stuff around yet. I remember Francois was doing something as well. There was only a few pieces that was making their way. So something must have sparked you, you know, as I always call it a synergistic moment, you know, the pots twirling and you're around it. You're, you know, you're in it at that time. Sure. Deep, deep, deep in it. Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about the logic, the evolution of dance music, a lot of the DJs, a lot of clubs we were, were branching out. And, you know, when you think about it, you, all, you had instrumental versions uh, of a lot of these records and the vocal version on the other side, and then a short radio version, three minutes. Well, the instrumental was a big part of the club vibration. You know, with an instrumental, you can extend the vocal and instrumental and play both and go back and forth and have fun with it. With that concept, the instrumental became very popular in the clubs. And when you go from having a lot of instrumental music being played in the clubs, what's the next level? What can we make? What can the clubs do that would be a little bit more exciting than an instrumental? Well, a dub version. Dub version, it became the next level of club excitement, echoing the vocals, echoing the drums, you know, it, and a lot of that, you know, a lot of a lot of the reggae movement, you know, Island Records was very popular, uh, you know, even though they could not get a lot of their records played in the States because of the political nature of reggae. But um, um, the dub, the dub concept, I'm pretty sure originated from a lot of the reggae because the reg reggae records had a lot of that dub uh vibration on you know on the B-side sites and you know little by little experimenting the club movement got into dubs and today you have you know today you look at these records you have so many mixes of a record that you know after a while you get dumbfounded on why do you have seven or eight different mixes of a record you know today it's just yeah. Well, there's a reason, there's a method to that madness in the 90s that started to show that there was different types of dance genres that they wanted to, like what you were doing back then, push the record further. Like, for example, a Whitney Houston track, they would do a record mix for Junior Vasquez. They do one more for Frankie Knuckles, one more underground dub for this crowd. So like you said, it's always about the business of the music more than the artistic part of it. Absolutely. You know, record companies, you know, are looking for answers. They're looking for a way to generate sales. You know, unfortunately, today, there's just so many record companies uh, coming out with music and so many artists that are out there that uh, to have a real hit record, it's it's. It's a it's a rough sea to navigate, um, 
but everyone's invited into the pool to <laughs> to give it a shot and uh, you know this is the business today you know um and, and and again, like I mentioned earlier at the start of the interview, Lenny, you know, there's a need to get back to basics today. There's a, there's a need to get back to, you know, the artist, the, the song, you know, a little bit more of that. We need a little bit more of that. And, yeah, you're listening to radio today, and, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that's on the radio today, you know, is still, even though it's not exactly what it was back in the seventies, you know, there is song structure, you know, you know, the music business, the pulse of the, you know, a lot of see, the issue, the issue Lenny um, for many is that a hot, a hot club record does not mean that you have a hit record. Okay. You could have a record being pounded in all these clubs. You know, there's a song that Danny Crivet played uh, at a party <clears throat> um, last year. I was there at the rooftop in Manhattan, and he played a song by Inaya Day, um, uh, Feeling Feeling, I think is the name of the song. Great, great club record. I mean, she's singing, I'm, fe I'm feeling, feeling. I'm feeling, feeling something about the way I'm feeling, you know, and that message vibrates on the floor and people are feeling the lyrics and feeling the pulse of the day. I'm feeling something. Great connection. Great connection on the dance floor. However, the record itself is not a big radio record. It's a great club record. You know, and there's this, these misconceptions on what a, 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 a real good record is. And not to take away from Anaya Day, she's got a great vocal. I love her to death. She's a friend of mine. Uh, but again, the when you listen to the mix on the record, the piano is low. There's not enough melody, but the attack, the spiritual attack of I'm feeling, feeling, I'm feeling, feeling something about the way I'm feeling communicating a message to the dance floor that is right on time for the house market. I love it, but I know for a fact that if I'm, if I'm sitting behind a record company, I got to put a little bit more melody into this record to give it more of that radio feel. You know? and, these are, and these are things within the business that quietly go on, you know, as we listen to records and play them and download and buy them. And you know what? Again, here's another really sad part to this business. Take away all the great things that you said. And now this is where it gets really shit. They look at the algorithm of the record, a graph of how the records perform <laughs> on social media is how a lot of record labels, and I'm talking the three, three four majors, will grab a record on. All that what you said, the spiritual part, the making of the record, the message has now just went into the trash <laughs> <laughs> because of an algorithm that says it's not performing as well as a Drake record, for example, because of and meanwhile, he could probably do the same thing with the music exactly 
But because Drake has that audience, or Kanye West, the records can fly out, fly up with streams. It's sad. It's really sad. And it's very true. You know, sometimes you have an artist come in, and because that artist has a huge following, you know, someone like Bucci in uh, South Africa, connected to Black Coffee, um, you know, you put her records because of her name carry a little bit more weight and you get a little bit more longevity with these records because of the name, even though someone else can sing the same exact record and not create the power of sales, download and, and club play because it's more of an unknown artist and not to take away from the fact that an unknown artist doesn't have a chance in this business. That's not true. There's a lot of things that have to work, but if you're running a record company and you want to decide to put artist a, and you have the power to put a name artist on this record, you're going to go with that name because this is business. You want, you want more leverage in a sea of, you know, uh, of, uh, of music that's out there. And it's a global situation now. You know, back in the 60s was one, and 70s was one thing with disco. Now, when music comes out, it's a global arena, okay? You're trying to get records charted and sold all, you know, all over the place. And it creates that much more, um, that much more um, competition, you know, to get these records happening. Can you give us a backstory to the Pese record that you had did that four track uh, album, a small EP, I guess, or however you want to? Christine Wilshire, you know, and I hope, you know, she's doing well um, uh, right now. I know that she's going through her health challenges. She wrote, she wrote she's fighting to get back to her life. So I hope so. She's a sweetheart. You know, she always was and always will be. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't have a lot to do with that record, um, uh, except that, you know, I was asked whether I liked it or not. I thought it was a good record, so we released it. But uh, I had, I didn't have a lot to do with my, with uh, studio work on that record, promotion. You know, it was not something that I was personally involved with, except you know, and, and again. Uh, there were a lot of records that I did not have a lot of studio work on. We've had uh, Tony Paris, uh, Auto Man, the Larry Levan's record that we that we that we uh, picked up, and I had very little studio work with that. Uh, you know, there were records that we did that we that we picked up, and we had a consensus. Do you like the record, Ray? Yeah, I like it. I think it's got a market. It's got a big disco market. You know, and that was part of the consensus. And we picked up the records and put them out. There were many records like that at Vanguard. And at the same time, there were many records that I was involved with, the signing, and at the same time, collaborated on the studio work to enhance the records. There were many records like that. Um, there were, um, you know, Junior Byron, Dance to the Music. From We licensed that from Canada. 
at that time, Eddie Grant's um, uh, Electric Avenue was big pop record on radio. And the beginning of that record has like a some motorcycle sounds, electric, you know. So we used some of those sounds on uh, in the studio um, on Junior Byron's dance to the music. Now keep in mind, Junior Byron, he's you know he's Jamaican like Eddie Grant. So I saw a connection of doing something like that, even though. Dance to the Music is a total different record. It's a, it's a club record. It's a fun record. It's not the pop record that Eddie Grant's um, Electric Avenue was. But I got some ideas from Eddie Grant's um, Electric Avenue and put that on Junior Byron's Dance to the Music uh, in the Vanguard studio. And I did the the new mix of the record. We released it. We did very well on the dance charts and sales. Uh, that was another record. So there were many records. I mean, keep in mind, uh, as uh, another issue, Public Enemy. I mean, you mentioned Public Enemy in your advertisement for the show. Let me give you a little insight. Yeah, uh, tell us about that. Your life with them and the whole thing. What happened? And not only that, you know, we had Twilight 22 after that, which was, you know, an offshoot of uh, Africa Bombada and uh, and Planet Rock. You know, um, um, getting back to Spectrum City, which later became Public Enemy. Um, I knew a gentleman by the name of Timothy Olfi. This is his picture. Tim Olfi. Got it. Got it. Okay. He's uh he's the president of Vibe Records. Tim and I go back years. As friends, I used to go to Tim Olfi's house on 85 Summer Street in Oyster Bay. Good man, had a lot of fine, fine memories with him. Well, and I used to, I was part of his company, Doc Productions. We were, we had worked together collaborating and doing remixes on songs and, 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 and forwarding these songs to record companies and these artists and getting record deals. The owner, the owner of Doc Productions, uh, Doc Abelbay, who was an actual doctor, chiropractor, um, and he actually owned BT Express and sold BT Express to Columbia Records for a million dollars. This was all while Tim Olfi, TK, Tim uh, Olfi, and I started, uh, uh, you know, worked together uh, under Doc Productions, trying to get record deals. Um, well, Tim brings me a, a demo. No, not a demo. This was a finished product on Spectrum City. Lies was the name of the song. Back with Check Out the Radio. Okay, now this is strictly hip hop, rap, 
type of music. And, and again, when you're sitting at a record company, you have to realize that there's a world of music out there and can you sell records with what you're doing? And I had to have an open mind to say, you know, is this a viable product for the label? <clears throat> there was a lot of resistance with me trying to bring a rap group to a classical jazz label <laughs> at that time, okay? Not to mention that rap and hip hop was not getting too much radio play because at that time, you know, it was not considered quote unquote, good music. So you had all these issues to deal with. Anyway, we signed um, Spectrum City. Tim Ophie brought the group to me. And I told him, we have to redo this. We have to redo the song. We have to redo um, Check Out the Radio. I mean, uh, Lies and Check Out the Radio. There's too much music, too much jazzy stuff going on. And I think we have to strip the song down to the bare elements of drums and rap. And then, work on other musical things to fill in the spots. For example, adding a little James Brown piano in the middle of the record, you know, enhancing the track that way, musically. So I told him, if we can do that, because I don't want to distort your, your production, you produced Tim had produced the record for Spectrum City, trying to get the deal at Vanguard, but I was not happy the way it was. I said, if we're gonna pick up this record, we have to reproduce it. Go back into the studio and play with it. Take out the bass line that was too busy. Take out the, the, the roads, the roads uh, element that was too busy and strip the record down, make it a little bit more likable for the streets so we agreed to do the deal and i went into the studio redid it uh lies and we put check out the radio on the backside and redid that and released the record um we got some sales from the record is we didn't get the sales that we were hoping for and we you know Airplay was just very difficult with rap at that time, okay? So the only avenue was sales and club play from the hip-hop clubs, uh, not the disco clubs. They were not going to play that, and I knew that. So the record did not do as well as we planned. Everybody kind of at Vanguard wondered why I picked up this record. And to me, I thought that the vocal qualities of the group, there was something there that spoke stardom to me. Somehow, the way they rapped, the diction was clear. Anyway, the record didn't do well. Then I met Stevie, uh, um, Gordon Bahari, 
He sent me a couple of demos. I'm going to get back to Spectrum City and Public Enemy in a second, but I'm going to make a point with Twilight 22 and get back to the other one. Uh, Gordon Bahari was a protege, a good friend, a student of Stevie Wonder. He sends me a few demos and one of his letters with the demo says, you know, I work with Stevie. So I got, well, I was a little curious. Okay, I work with Stevie Wonder. Maybe there's something here. I listened to the music. I didn't like any of it. I just didn't feel it. So, but I, I noticed one thing that Gordon had in his demos, and that was a feel for melody. A good feel for melody. So I call him one afternoon at Vanguard. Gordon, I got an idea. I like, the, I like some of your melodies. I, and, and you incorporate some of this Middle Eastern melodies that are a little bit, a little bit obscure, a little bit mysterious. I like that. I like that. Why don't we do something a little street? where you could incorporate those mysterious melodies into the record and find a group of guys, do a rap on this thing, and let's see where we are. So I shipped him a copy of Planet Rock. I shipped him uh, Pack Jam by the Johnson Crew, which Jelly Bean mixed. And I told Gordon, when you receive these two records, I want you to do one thing. Combine the rhythm tracks. That's it. Create a new bass line. Combine the rhythm tracks and call me back on the phone once you have that down. Okay? You made it simple. Give me the, combine these two street beats. Boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. Okay? Combine. Let me hear. And put some percussion. But let me feel that on the phone. When he called me back a week later on the phone, I said, this sounds great. You know, I love the bass line. I like that. And but the melody, the melody on the bass line was too melodic. So I told him, make the bass line atonal. In other words, when you hear the bass line, it's not telling you what kind of song it is. It's not pretty. It sounds like a murky, deep down, negative bass line with no music on it. I told him, make it atonal. When you do the music, when you start adding those melody uh, lines that, that I like that you've showed me on your demos, uh, Middle Eastern. Now we'll put the music on top of that, but make the rhythm track and the bass line negative sounding. Street, heavy street. Don't worry about being labeled uh, a person that is not musical because you grew up with Stevie Wonder. Let me handle that. Just, you know. So, um, so then he started putting these Arabian melodies um, on the song. You know, 
on top of that. And I fell in love with that. I said, man, this sounds good. You know, so he went and auditioned a bunch of rappers and he would play me their, their vocal. I wanted to hear their vocal qualities. I just finished working with Spectrum City and got an idea of what vocal qualities are like for rappers. So I wanted to hear good vocal qualities. You know, I want to hear the, the lyrics clearly. And picked up a bunch of guys and they did a rap. And he asked me, what, um, what kind of a rap do you want to hear? I told him, talk about, talk about the everyday stuff that's going on. You know, have these guys write about, write, write about the stuff that they're, they're dealing with on the street, the issues, you know, the everyday issues. Just give me a rap regarding, you know, that kind of stuff. And they wrote Electric Kingdom. Um, the vocal sounded good. I went into the studio and did the mix with Gordon, but basically I was in the capacity of uh, executive producer, kind of guiding the project, you know, on the phone. And eventually I did the mix with Gordon, but. Yeah, uh, but you were doing what we call true a and ring Pinky. Real yeah. a and well, Real, yeah. We're developing it. Yeah, I, I Well, you know, go, you know, uh, Lenny, I thank you for that comment. You know, I was, you know, I, I, I realized that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a real person. You know, if I if I don't like something, you know, how many times I, as a Billboard reporter, me playing records in a club, being asked to play a record or report a record that I didn't like? You know, I mean, I give you one example. Um, Gloria Stefan, Stefan Conga, big when the record first came out. Because I was playing at the Ipanema and it was a Latin record, a Latin disco record, I was one of the first DJs to get, you know, calls on, are you playing it? Are you reporting it? I didn't like the record. I didn't like the record. Let's reenact the phone call. <laughs> it's on Mondays they call. Okay. Yeah, hey, Pinky, Pinky, did you get that record we said we mailed you? And that's about five copies already they sent you. Well, more than that. Pinky, <laughs> 10 weeks later, did you get that record, Pinky, that Conga record? Oh, I got that record. You got it. You know, it's unbelievable. You know, the, the hype that goes on. Come on, man. What's his name is playing the record to? You know, they're always full yeah, of that yeah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> quietly, I don't, quietly, I didn't care who's playing the record. I didn't like it. Pinky, we're trying to make it number one. Come on, we need you to help us take it number one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lenny Fontana's behind the record. Let me think about it, okay? But you know, so to speak. So I mean, this is this is the environment. So um, you know, I had that stigma that if I'm playing for a Latin club like the Ipanema, that certain records are just going to fly on the charts when I get it, get it, and I'm going to be reporting these records. Not true. You know, I mean, I mean, there's a, I mean, and I, I for a lot of the DJs that are listening uh, to this show today, they know what I'm talking about. They know for a fact that, you know, even if a record is being liked by another audience, if you don't like that record, you're not going to play it, no matter what you're hearing. Sometimes, sometimes you go, you know, you see a record evolving that you don't like. And it was like a borderline record for you. And you pull it out 
and maybe you can do something with it in the club. Maybe you want to play the instrumental, even though you hate the vocal, you know, things of that nature, you know, happen. This is the, you know, you're getting tons of records. You know, not every record is going to, you know, sometimes you're going to miss one or two and you go back and pull it out because it's happening and you play it. That's okay. I, I've been through that too. That's part, you know, this is part of your career of things you deal with. You know, it's uh, it's never smooth sailing, but you have a general idea of what you want to play. You know, if you're playing for a house, a house audience, you're not going to play disco. Okay? You're, there's going to be a clash there, you know. It, and vice versa, if you're playing disco and sometimes you're not going to, deal with playing house. It's just, there's a, unless you have an audience that's accepting both, then you can play, you know, with the music a little bit that way and then take it off in a direction based on the feedback. All right, so getting back to Twilight 22, we had Electric Kingdom, big hit record. Then we had to let go of Spectrum City because my boss at Vanguard says, Ray, we got Twilight 22, we got Gordon Bahari, we don't need, we don't need Spectrum City. Let them go. And I, I told my boss, you know, they have, they have, there's something there I like about the group. You know, there's, there's potential. Anyway, Short story, because Vanguard was not a major label, small in, you know, smaller label, less funding. I mean, there are a lot of things I wanted to do with Vanguard, you know, that a lot of artists that I wanted to sign that we couldn't afford. I had to deal with the reality of where we were financially with these projects. So we let Spectrum City go. They went to Columbia Records with their next release, changed their name to Public Enemy, and they became megastars. Okay. But I knew that there was something there that I really liked about the group, something about their vocal qualities and their sense of being, uh, their presence with their vocals was a little bit, you know, commanding for me, something that I liked. But they proved that point at Columbia Records and, you know, it's something that we, it could have been Vanguard. So it is what it is, you know, it's my life. It happens, it happens to the best. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's like life, you know, in life, uh, Lenny, like what you're doing, right now you're, you learn from your own environment. You know, you, you do things, Sometimes things don't work out perfectly. You go back, you correct some things that you're working on. And based on the pain of the failure, so to speak, life is pain management, right? From the pain, you adjust your sales and you go back with a game plan and move on. And it's over time from all that pain that's putting you in a direction of your destiny. That's how life works. So we lost out on Spectrum City, 
but we did well with Twilight 22 and we did well with other artists. So it's hit or miss. And that's the record business. How long does your life and your tenure last at Vanguard? Oh, I would say our last record was 1984. So I would say five, six years, give or take, doing records. You know, um, you know and we started Flip Records too. <clears throat> Flip Records was a division of the Vanguard Records. And I keep in mind, you know, I was part of the dance music movement at Vanguard, I had nothing to do with classical or jazz uh, or country that the, that the label was known for. So Flip Records became another division of dance. <clears throat> Back in the 80s, there was this big movement with uh, the stuff coming out of the UK, the dance rock stuff. Uh, Boy George, uh, Simple Minds, um, uh, Tears for Fears, Falco, uh, a lot of this stuff coming out of the UK, Germany. Uh, I, you know, because I'm a music person, I liked some, I grew up on rock and roll, like I mentioned before, soft rock. My brother was playing all this stuff when I was growing up in his bedroom and, you know, James Taylor, uh, the Five Stair Steps, uh, the Stones, uh, uh, the Beatles, and the 80s rock and dance rock stuff intrigued me, you know? And I was a member of Rockpool, getting all these rock, dance rock records. So I said, well, let's do flip records and see what we can do with some of this dance rock stuff. 99 records down in Soho. 99 records, Street. 99 records um, run by Ed Bauman, who's deceased now. Let me tell you something about 99 Records and all that rock stuff that was coming out of the UK, Germany, Scotland. I mean, this guy, Ed Bauman, I mean, I, I have never met a person so into street rock stuff, underground, progressive stuff in my life. It was Ed Bauman that was responsible for that White Lines record that Melly Mel selling sings in, that, that rhythm track came from... Uh, Liquid Cavern, right? Liquid Cavern, exactly. That, it's, that was his record. That was part of, you know... You know when, you hear the, when you hear that record, you, you think of White Lines because it's instrumental, right? Absolutely right. The bass line is the exact bass line. So Melly Mel and his group, they did white lines. They put word, lyrics on top of the track. I'm sorry, Optimo Cavern. Optimo. Optimo. Exactly. I'm sorry. You're right about that. That was on the other song was part of the EP. Um, well, this was Ed Ed Bauman. You know, with getting stuff. Even the the street market, the R&B hip hop market, was circulating around his store because he had access to a lot of this street stuff that was happening abroad. 
So one day I got a call from Ed Bauman while I was at Vanguard Records. Ray, I got something for you. You know, you told me you're looking for stuff that's a little bit more song structured. I got something. Um, come down to the store. So I go down some afternoon, say hi to him. And he's always playing music in the store. You know, a lot of rock DJs hanging out, the DJs from the Mud Club and, you know, all these uh, progressive DJs uh, uh, playing uh, uh, progressive music. Well, Ed calls me down and he hands me this record. says, listen to this. So he puts it on the turntable. End games. First, last for everything. The original version from the UK on phonogram records. I said, wow, nice song. I like this. Melodic. <clears throat> so we at Vanguard communicate with phonogram records in the UK and we license the record for release at Vanguard on Flip Records. When we, when we got the permission, they sent the two-track master from the UK. Uh, I went into the studio with Mark Berry, and we do a remix, get it released on Flip Records. We did, I think we went to about number 31 on the dance charts with the record, Billboard dance charts. And uh, there was a disco uh, uh, edit, a uh, disco net. Remember disco net? Uh, it was a disconnect version. I forget who did the version, the edit on that. That created a lot of excitement those days. And that was our initial release of Endgames, first, last, for everything. Now, there was a little bit of a clash going on because even though we licensed this record from the UK, Endgames was packaging together a new album we could not afford the album they wanted a lot of money and even though i wanted groups like tears for fears and and falco we couldn't compete with the major labels with the money that um, these these bands were asking for so um, Endgames was going to release an album on MCA Records and our Endgames release was clashing with their initial release of Endgame, Endgames and their first single on MCA was called Love Cares and MCA Records was a little upset that we had put out first, last, for everything, because it was interfering with their release of this new band called Endgames on, the, on their label, okay? It was the same group, so there was a clash going on with that record. You know, this is something private that, you know, that happened, and it just was one of those things, weird things. Anyway, uh, while when I left the Ipanema, I wanted to get involved with playing more of this stuff, you know, a little bit more Motown. I couldn't play a lot of this stuff at Deep Anima, too much of a Latin audience that I wanted to 
branch out and play more of the dance rock stuff, a lot of a little bit of the new wave stuff, Motown. So I went to a club called Cartoon Alley on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, West 84th Street. And it was an after hours club. And I was able to play all this stuff, you know, disco, funk, James Brown, Motown, New Wave. And it was reggae. It was pretty cool. So, you know, and, and again, it helped me kind of fine tune and maintain my ears for melody and songs doing that. Even though I love the Ipanema dearly, um, I felt that I needed, because I was also involved working for Vanguard Records, I felt the need to play club music that kind of connected with my side for music in general. So I went to uh, Cartoon Alley on the Upper West Side. Well, one of the girls that worked there as a secretary also performed at Cartoon Alley with her band. And keep in mind, Madonna used to perform at Cartoon Alley once a month. And let me tell you something about Madonna. Madonna would get on stage and she had this cute little voice. You know, I remember her first record, uh, Everybody, that Mark Havens uh, produced, a good friend of mine. God bless him. You know, I got to spin at uh, Danceteria as a guest for Mark. Uh, he asked me to spin as a guest DJ at Danceteria. Had a lot of fun with him that night. Uh, but anyway, um, Madonna would perform at um, Cartoon Alley once a month. And during her intermission, she would she would be very upfront, very, very um, clashing with her audience. You know, sometimes, you know, they, you know, she was a little bit of a, what I would call a little bit of, a little bit of a, a, a bitchy person, you know, wanted things her way, you know, would talk to men, yell at men, you know, on stage, she would do that in her intermission. This was Madonna, okay? So we had a girl in the, at Cartoon Alley that was one of the secretaries during the week at the, handled a lot of the office work, uh, Alexis Clark. Well, we get a record. Um, um, we did a record together and put it on Flip Records as the second release, uh, 14 Days by Lex. And the record did well on WLIR radio, uh, progressive station, and a lot of secondary progressive stations across the country. We sold some records. Uh, Mark Berry and I did the mix on the record at Vanguard. And the record itself, 14 Days, was we took that record. The concept for 14 Days was a record released in German that Ed Bauman had given me at. 99 records called 14 Taj, which translates to 14 days in English, 14 Taj in German, T-A-I-G-E. And then the group name was, uh, the, the initial group was called Felfarben, also German. Well, we the record was done in German. You know, we did a new production on it. We translated we had somebody translate the lyrics into 
English. We had Lex talk the record as the artist and we put it out and we had a hit record with 14 days. John Hammond, uh, who was the radio promotion person at Flip Records, um, I just spoke with John the other day. Uh, we're reconnecting again on Facebook. And uh, he, he remembers the record. He wishes that they would reissue the record today, 14 days. So that was our second release. And then we had a third release. And keep in mind, the first release, uh, Lenny, um, Endgames was produced by Steve Levine. Steve Levine produced The Culture Club. Boy George. That's Steve Levine. See, that you, you already had, you were already on, your thumb was on the on, on it already. You were already on top of things before they were actually breaking out to become commercial status things. They were, you were right before. So let's really say it. You were setting trends without realizing you were setting trends at the time and breaking things when nobody else saw this. Exactly, exactly. Wow. You know, you know where that comes from, Benny? That comes from having a tremendous open mind. But let me be clear to everyone. Sure. Until you just said it, nobody understood that, Pinky. Only you and the people around you, your core, your inner sanctum at the time would have known what you were doing because you were powwowing. That's right. All that. That's right. Nobody on the outside, all we knew was we saw these records coming out. We're going, what's he doing? You know, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy when you think about it. You're doing all this work. You're listening to all of these records from the pool. You're getting records in the mail. You're getting extra copies. You're talking to DJs. You're going to these DJ clubs, meeting DJs, getting a feel for how they communicate with their audience. Uh, musically and you're taking all of this in but at the same time you're saying to yourself is this it is this all of it you know there's radio out there there's radio djs there's there's rock clubs where is this perfect record where are these you know so you're even though you're you're in the middle of putting out hit records, you're still second guessing yourself saying, am I missing something? Is there something, you know, and that comes from just, you know, being open to all types of music. You know, if you're just doing house or just doing disco, you can say, I like this disco record. I don't like this disco record. I like this disco record. I don't like this disco record. And I don't care if it's radio or not. Is it working for my club? And that may be okay for a lot of DJs, but when you're working with a record company and you're dealing with different audiences out there, radio, rock, R&B, hip hop, and understanding the pulses of all of those audiences, you become a little bit more humble. You become a little bit more quiet and you listen more because you're dealing with more, you know, more, more avenues, you know. So, I mean, just like you, Lenny, you know, you're dealing with different interviews. You're dealing with backgrounds of people and where they come from. And you're putting all that together. 
and you're trying to connect with an audience and give them entertainment and give them education, you know, so, and it is what it is. And over time, you know, like you mentioned uh, a couple of days ago, you know, you've got 69 shows, you know, this one is probably 70, you know, in a year, how many more are you going to have? And where, and the, the most important facet, the value of what you're doing, is it, is it good enough for a bigger stage to take this and do something grand with it, you know, and only you, because you're the, you're the director, you're the, you're in the driver's seat or steering the ship, but you got to be open to everything that's going on and learn, you know, so same thing. And also have a big pair of cojones too. <laughs> and not be afraid to take the chance. And that's the difference of what you were saying back then. You weren't afraid to take the risk. You were, I was, you were granted, you were dealing with the, with the hierarchy of the elders, but at the same time, you wanted to take that risk to, to make a point. Absolutely. You know, and it, and, and, and it becomes a very sacred place. In other words, Many times you're alone. When you're doing things and you're taking chances, when things work, whoa, everybody is on your side. Everybody loves you. What? When they don't work, oh, Ray Fink, I want you. I want you. But when you, but wait, yeah, wait. When they don't work. Wait, wait hang okay. on. Tell everybody the dark side. Yeah. What happens when it didn't work? Absolutely. Then, then, then people can say, "Oh, he doesn't know what he's doing, or what's wrong with him." And they forgot about wait. They forgot about the last two or three hit records you had. <laughs> that doesn't exist no more. Now you're a failure. Wait a minute. Yeah. I had three other big hit records. <laughs> but you know, and you know, it's, uh, you didn't even okay. mention. Not to mention that you worked on Fonda Ray as well. I That's mean, right? Fonda was a. Let me tell you about Fonda Ray. Oh my God! You know, we had fun with that record, and Fonda Fonda is just a, a, a wonderful person. I love her to death. Um, when we released Fonda Ray, I was working at the Ipanema. I was. I remember coming home Saturday night from a long night, and I always had to leave the club from the back. We had a back entrance away from the front entrance where everybody at the end of the night was hanging out in front of the club, you know, and, and people would hang out for another couple of hours just talking. You know, I had to leave the back way because every time I walked out the front way, people would stop me and wouldn't let me go home. I mean, I, and I was tired. <laughs> I want to get some sleep. So I would walk out the back way. Well, one night, one Saturday night, I leave the Ipanema and I go home and uh, I turn on the radio as I'm kind of getting ready to go to bed, just kind of curious, turn on Frankie, Frankie Crocker, put the music real low. And, and I'm kind of getting ready, taking some vitamins, getting ready to go to bed, having a drink of water. And I hear, and I run to my radio and I turn it up. Find the race playing on the race Sunday morning about six in the morning. And I say, holy shit, you know, um, I got an Vanguard note. This thing's on the radio. 
you know, WBLS. The next day, I walk into Vanguard Records, Monday morning. I talk to Ray Smith and uh, what's the other promotion guy? Tom, Tom Gray. <clears throat> Did you guys hear Fonda last night on the radio? No, we don't. We didn't know it was on BLS. Frankie's playing it. So they contact Frankie Crocker. It's on test rotation over like a fat rat. And we're all excited at Vanguard Records. The records on BLS as a test. And when, you know, Peter, from, for those that don't know a little bit about radio, especially in those days, you had test rotation, light rotation, medium, power rotation. Power rotation means you're, the record's getting played five or six times, I mean, three or four times within every two hours, you know. So we were on test. And within a week, we go from test to medium rotation, you know, we, and we're selling records. And here we are, over like a fat rat. Eventually, you know, the record did well. You know, we sold a ton of records at Vanguard. Uh, I remember Fonda performing at the garage uh, over like a fat rat. They loved they loved the track there, you know. So that was another one of my records. I completely you forgot. Know, do you know the one of the most amazing things about the whole era? Right around 1980, okay, the BPMs came way down. Yes, sir. R&B that's right. I mean, it was just like it just went from 125 to 133 down to 114, 116. It's like, yeah, absolutely. When you think about the hip hop market, it's less than that. So, well, we're talking about dance music. We just talk about dance records. They just came way down in BPM. And let me, you make a very good point, Lenny. You know what's magical about all that? If you really study, you know, this and the BPMs, when you have a record that is down-tempo, you have the basis for the R&B market. Rock records today are down-tempo too, a lot of them, because they, they have the, the fundamental, the, the, the chemistry of hitting their market, the rock and roll, and possibly the R&B market as well, you know, with the rhythm tracks. So you get more attention when the record has a tempo that hits these, you know, extra markets. So you try to produce records with that in mind, and you have a better chance of hitting these markets. You know, so this is it's an incredible business when you understand, you know, the target audience and how to come up with a formula. If I'm if I'm producing a record. I want to come up with a rhythm track that hits white and black. Unless unless the record. Musically or. You know, the, you know, if you have a, a James Brown type of a singer, then you're going to go strictly R&B. You know. I mean, but 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 for the most part, you come up with a rhythm track that's down tempo because radio, when you listen to records on the radio, 
you can hear the lyrics and hear the song a lot better if it's slower. When it's faster, it's hard to dissect what the singer is singing. So, if that's true, produce most of your records at a lower tempo, which features the artist more. You can hear the lyrics better when the records are slower. And R&B records, they like their records down tempo. Hip hop, down tempo. Disco records are always up, up, up tempo, but the records that make a bigger impact disco have a little bit of a downer tempo connecting with the other. That's the magic of the business. And I know I'm going to give the magic to you and say, I want to thank you for all the education <laughs> and theoretic theories and the knowledge of all those ingredients that made you the DJ that you are, the A&R man that you had become and then actually became legendary at, and also remixer and the phenomenal work that you left all of us, always. I mean, the work speaks for itself. You don't have to do anything today. That work still holds canter in today's game. The records are beautiful. You still have that same attitude, never changed. It's the same beautiful meaning. What I mean by that is, everyone, he's one of the guys that would sit down and explain it to you. He wouldn't throw you out of his office. He explained why he didn't like it. He'd give you some time. The other ones were not so nice, but he happens to be a sweetheart. And he would, he would explain why your demo won't work for Vanguard or for the, what he's doing. You know, you know how many artists, Lenny, and thank you for that. Thank you so much, Lenny. Um, you know how many artists that work on television would send me their demo? And because they were on TV, they would try to get a record deal based on that premise alone, that they were on television and they were a star. And here's their new song. You know, you should pick it up before someone else picks it up. It doesn't work that way. Yo, Bo Derek's got a new team. He's on 10. And you Bo Derek. Oh, no, I can't put this out. I can't put this out. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of that. And Phil Merman is a great singer, but that was another big disaster, putting Sinatra with disco and Ethel Merman. Johnny Mathis, I always laugh about Steve Thompson mixing Begin to Begin. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, this was the business. I remember uh, Santana did an uh, interesting song, was up-tempo. Jellybean did the mix on that record. Um, uh, say it again, okay? You know, so there were some interesting things um, out there, but uh, you know, a lot of these television stars, you know, was they were jumping the bandwagon to do stuff, and you know, it, a lot of it was just not uh, not even in the ballpark, you know, unfortunately. So, you know, but 
this was the business. You know, the 70s brought everyone to the table to do records. There was a big excitement with disco. You know, and I don't know, Lenny, if we can ever have that again. I don't know if we can ever get back, you know, to that era. You know, there was so much excitement. You know what was big about that, that, that era? Not only was there so much incredible music, you know, Casablanca and TK Records led, led the, the frontier with a lot of this stuff. You know, and there was a lot of indie labels that came in. But the fact that there were clubs, there were record promotion people circulating the clubs, there was radio people, the radio stations, the record pools, there was, there was an extra lifeline tied in to the club market. Today, what do you have at these clubs? What's the connection with the clubs and the bigger picture of radio sales? You know, you have, you don't have promotion people. You have none of that. You know, it's all gone. So I don't know if we could ever get that back. You know, I don't, you know, it's, it's a great thing to be part of that era and, and take that wisdom with you and help others. You know, help others find a way that may not understand the path to having a record become a success. <sighs> it saddens me. Yeah. It saddens me because I was part of that business, like of the vinyl analog business. I remember it as great. It's, it was a great business. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, there was a ugly, ugly too. Let's not, let's no. not know it. <laughs> There's a lot of under, underhanded stuff going on, but well, you had, you had, you had the arenas to play the. Re As you are making the tracks, you can go get them tested out and see that reactions right away. That's the difference than now. Right, right. You had test pressings circulating all over the place. The difference yeah. is, Pinky, is that the music is not the number one driving factor. The artist, DJ artist, is the driving factor. The music is second, third, fourth level on the pecking order. Exactly. That's the problem. And that's where you don't, it, it's, it's about, it's a big, it's a big money-making machine now with the yeah. artist more than the music. But like I mentioned before, there's a need, and I understand, I understand. You know, it's like sports. You watch football, you watch baseball, you watch, you know, it's a business and and it's evolved to the point that the salaries are through the roof and 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 the actual ball game has changed because of all of these entities, you know, governing the game to the point that it's more important the the business aspect than the game, but the fans are there for the game. So same thing with the music business. It's all these, all of these entities are governing the music, but without the music, there is no business. So there's a need to get back to the roots of how this business, what this business is really all about, which is the artist, the song, the little, the little things that are really the big things in this business and get back to that and still continue the business. 
it's difficult to get back to roots with a lot of this stuff. Um, but I think there's there's a, there's an intent to find an answer, uh, a medium that's going to work. And uh, one of the things that can help is, you know, a lot of these producers are young. They don't have the knowledge of that you and I have, Lenny, about this business going back in time. They don't have that rich history as a part of the detail on how to produce records, you know. So they're producing records based on what they hear on the radio or on the downloads or on track source. And and don't forget, Pinky, yeah. Google now owns Spotify. Right. So you have, again, all about the algorithms of how you place. So that means if you went like this, went... <laughs> And you would say, if someone brought that to you, you put your hands, your head in your hands and go, this is garbage. But it's just technology has changed the game. Absolutely. And the other part is you don't have the camaraderie that you had back then. The, the excitement of something so fresh and new. That was being discovered. You guys were building as you were going. You know, it's already too, it's too monopolized. It's too corporate. It's just live nations involved. This is involved. So we have to, we have to accept the changes. Yeah. And like you said, we all either stay in it and work around, do the work around to bring some of the old classic stuff to where it makes sense for today. Or Hang your hat up and say, I can't do it no more. And a lot of people, a lot of the old timers have done just that. You know, they just can't, you know, the integrity they have of, of creating music with real musicians and, you know, the whole thing of uh, analog recordings. I mean, it's changed so much. And keep in mind, as you get older, your body's breaking down and you say to yourself, well, do I really want to reinvent myself in this market and, 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 and study all the new stuff that's going on, the technology that's, dry, that's a driving force and going at warp speed at my age? Do I want to get involved and reinvent that's that's the question. So for many, they leave and, you know, they're happy to have done what they've done in the past. But quietly. It's a new business. It's a changing business. And, you know, something it's always going to be a changing business. And with technology moving at warp speed, it's going to change faster. And if you're not that person that's willing to reinvent yourself. I think the message is hang it up, enjoy what you've built 
um, and let the new people hang in there. Now there are they are you know they are you know for example you have Lady Gaga and 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 Tony Bennett. Okay, I mean doing stuff. You know, there's gonna be that test. There's gonna be that test. All right. Call that the litmus. The lit. <laughs> test. Yeah, there's always one or two that top two to two. Right, right. There's always gonna be. There's always gonna be that experiment. You know, this is this is the music business. It's creativity. You know, it's if something works, good. If it doesn't when it comes work, down to it, is does it make money? And that's where that's I leave it. it. That's, that's it. it. That's it. That's it. Because all the executives I worked with and all the labels I worked with, they can love you to death, but they always look at how much money they're making with you. That's it. That's it. That's it. If you're not doing that, what are you doing in this business? You're, you're out. You're, you're out. out. You're thank you. Pinky, thank you so much. You are a true legend of the game, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lenny. I love you guys so much. I love what you do. Much success uh, to what you're doing. I hope that 2022 is nothing more than a great platform for Lenny San, uh, Fontana and True Stories. And, uh, you know, I... I, 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 I Let me show some of your pictures, to too. Let me show some of the pictures. Look, look at Tony Smith. We just lost him recently with Danny Crivet. Very bad. Thank Oh, yeah. I uh, yes. Bacho, look at Bacho and you, unbelievable. Bacho, boy, do I remember Bacho at Plato's Retreat? <laughs> yes, oh, Bacho Plato's Retreat. <laughs> Picky in his time with wearing his Izod shirts back in the day. <laughs> Picky behind the eleven hundred turntables. Yes, sir. Wow, you got you got some great. I wanted to show some of these photos. <laughs> This is this is Pinky at his at his prime at the Ipanema right there at the Ipanema. Look at him. Yeah. Wow. And of course, yeah. John Luongo and John Morales together. Good buddies of mine. Very nice. Very nice, Lenny. Very nice. Very nice memories there. Thank you so much. Um, you know, it, it's great. It's great to be here because. Uh, you know, you go, you drift back into the past and you bring back all those memories and all of those memories give you life. You know, they keep you alive. Like I mentioned before, at the start of the broadcast, music is the fountain of youth. Let me tell you something. All you have to do is think of a song that you love, that you like, and you're right back there at that time bringing back those memories, those feelings of joy and happiness. And music does that. And uh, it's, you know, to me, music should be part of every curriculum in school. Um, uh, uh, it should be mandatory uh, to get good, you know, to get grades and, and be able to get a degree in school based on your connection with music. Because I think there's a, you know, the expression of, freedom the free expression to express yourself musically is liberating for <clears throat> um everyone doesn't matter if you're young or old music does that it liberates the spirit 
You know, so that this is something that should be part of every school curriculum. You know, um, you know uh, what type of music doesn't matter. You experiment with different types of music, including the dance stuff in school. But it should be part where you're being, you know, graded and uh, and helps your career. You know, uh, in many ways. <clears throat> Thanks, bro. One second. Let me just make next week's announcement and then we're going to say goodbye to you. Hold on. We got Johnny D next week from Henry Street. We go from the 80s now into the 90s. Johnny D, another big AR executive, sort of like Pinky, worked at Atlantic, signed amazing house records on Henry Street Records. Those remember the Bucketheads, the Bomb, and all the big hits that Johnny D was involved with. Tori Amos. Armand Van Helden, he A&R and helped get those remix projects become massive hits. He will be here next week for a special Thanksgiving Eve on True House Stories. So tune in. And of course, Pinky, we're going to leave you here because we're going to need to talk to you more. We could spend all night talking to you. <laughs> you're an education. You're an educator. You need to run for public office before you. <laughs> because I always told everybody one thing about Pinky. Pinky is loved by everybody. He hurts no one. He has no ill will in his body. And you know something, Lenny? Music does that. Music opens up the doors of love you know it, it, you listen to a record and 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 uh there's parts of the record that just touch the inner soul you know you listen to all that motown stuff back in the 60s diana ross love child uh, the temptations uh uh you know there's there's something about the melody and the music that just hits home you know, and it's beyond words. And music will always be that avenue of expression. And it's very liberating when you're dealing with stress, when you're dealing with uh, complications in life. Music will take a moment and soothe you, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, that extends life. So I'm going to be I'm going to be a music person to the day I die. What do you think, Lenny? You ain't dying, Poppy. You're here for you're gonna be here to forever and ever. You'll be past all of us, trust me. Thanks a lot, Lenny. I love you so much. Thank you so much. When I make the movie about Pinky, you'll all tune in. You're gonna know Pinky right there, but he said it better. No one could say it as well as he has. Bring it to the schools. Pinky, the only reason why I mute you because we got him feedback. But his words echo what I've always say, you know, study your instruments, know your music. You got to go in the studio, understand what you're doing. Know music, fundamentals of music and stuff that that will help make records because you just don't want to be logged into just a computer and become part where you're just dragging and dropping sounds. You should really know the architecture and this could help you change the game. If a lot of these producers, if a lot of these producers, Lenny, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if a lot of these producers knew that they are in a global competition with what they're doing and that what they are really doing of just copying stuff 
and sampling stuff and just laying down basic rhythm tracks is a dime a dozen. It's all over the place that there's got to be a little bit more meat to the production. Then I think, you know, you would have, you know, a lot of these producers do more homework before they go into the studio. You know, that's the key. You're producing something, your signature's on it. Why make it sound like this other record that's not, you know, that's that's not really happening on a, on a major level? You know, there's a lot of competition. You know, today more so. Again, with all of tech, all of the technology, um, things are moving very quickly, and there's a psychological effect on these producers telling them, hurry up and get the record done. Hurry up and get the record done because there's a lot of records coming out and you're you're competing with that. But that doesn't mean that when you release your record, it's gonna be accepted by the masses because the production is not polished because of the rush, because you're trying to meet with the demands of of fast-moving technology. Take your time, do it right, and once you release it, let the technology speak at that point. But don't try to do it because of the te technology uh, affecting your production. Um, in other words, you want to quickly do the record as compared to doing it, doing, doing the record correctly. So, you know, and it is what it is. You know, it is today what it is. You know, you can't, you know, if this is the environment, a smart producer takes all of this in, does the homework, and finds, tries to find a solution, which may, which may take trial and error. But over time, you're moving in a direction to capture your part of what you're doing out there. Words from the wise. Words from the wise. Pinky, thank you so much. We went way over time, but we were so happy to have you talk as long as we could because we had to get every morsel we could out of you. Go okay. for so I thought we were doing a nine-hour nine interview. Uh, <laughs> Lenny, I'm, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting here for nine hours. My clock says we have another, I think, another four hours, five hours left. Yes, we do. <laughs> we'll bring you back for sure, Pinky. But the people were so happy, and, and this will be everywhere. Again, everyone, we want to sign up around the world. Thank you again. Pinky, don't leave us yet. Thank you again for tuning in. See you all next week right here. Same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs>